What keeps you going in your worship? What keeps you going in your worship of God? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian who has been following Jesus for many years. And for you that answer is pretty simple. You have lots of thoughts on the matter. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're a new Christian. You've only been a Christian for a short amount of time and, and you're not really sure. You haven't followed Jesus very long and you're wondering, I don't know, how am I going to worship the Lord for the rest of my life? Well, maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus and you've gathered here with us and ended up here somehow in some way and you wonder, what are all of you people doing here in this room worshiping this God that you do not see? Why do you sing? Why do you pray? Why do you read His Word? Friends, what keeps you going in your worship? What causes you to move forward? And what tends to hold you back in exalting God and glorifying Him? You know, this is a good question for us to ask, especially this morning as we celebrate as a church 96 years of God's faithfulness here in this place among this people. For 96 years, God has sustained a people in this neighborhood in the proclaiming of the gospel. Now, certainly there has been ups and there has been downs. If we had gotten a sheet cake made, Pastor David mentioned this morning, it might have been a good idea if we'd gotten a roller coaster put on the sheet cake because the life of any church that has been around and, and covenanted together for as long as our church has, has certainly had its roller coaster moments of ups and downs. But nonetheless, though we have changed, God has not. He has been faithful, and He has been faithful in sustaining a worshiping people here in this place. And so I ask you this morning, as an individual and as a church, how do you intend to endure in worshiping God? Over the last few weeks we've been considering this as we have made our way through Romans 11, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 thinking specifically about how the author of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, has brought up this concept of a long-distance race. This idea of running the race that our sovereign God has set before us Himself. And what does it look like when that race, that pathway, has many twists and turns through valleys and mountaintops, through meadows and deserts? We've seen that more than anything in running this race, the Christian needs from God Himself endurance. We need the gift, the grace of perseverance, of God's sustaining work. If you think back in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, we thought about this. How, how God has called us to two things in particular here in running the race before us. Number one, to cast off the weight the weightiness of, the, of worldliness that, that can get around us, that can hold us down, that can weigh us down. And in that same sense that we are to lay aside sin itself that so easily entangles us. But the second thing he calls us to do there in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, is to look to Jesus. To look to Jesus. To cast the eyes of our hearts and minds. To use our, our hands and our feet and our voices to look unto Jesus, to pursue Him, to take hold of Him in His Word and what it holds out, to take hold of Him in prayer. We saw then in verses 4 through 11 of Hebrews 12 that God also brings hardships into our life. 
hardships into our life that God brings and that God allows to happen to us. Deep, deep sorrows, deep times of despair, and yes, even times of doubt. And God brings those into our lives as a means of discipline. Not discipline in the form of, of correction always. Yes, that is a, a part of God's discipline that He corrects us when we are in sin. It's a sign that we are a child of God, yes. But also discipline in the sense of formation. This is how Hebrews 12, 11 closed out. You remember what it says there? Let me remind you in case you've forgotten or you weren't here. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those, here's the condition, who have been trained by it. And so we see that God brings hardship, difficulty, pain into our lives so that we would be trained by it. And that we would yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. So this all built into what we looked at last week in chapter, verses 12 through 17. Where in light of, of Jesus and who He is and what He has done, even in light of what we saw back in Hebrews 11, that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And, and even as we see what God is doing amidst, amidst the difficulties in our lives, what does He then command us to do in Hebrews 12, 12? To lift our drooping hands and to strengthen our weak knees so that we may run straight down that race that is set before us. He told us what to take up. And at the same time, He has told us what to leave behind. Those sins that would undo not just our lives, but, but would unravel the Christian community itself. Those sins that would cause division and great hardship and, and sadness and sorrow amongst God's people. Sins like bitterness and even sexual immorality. And so the question lies before us today, how can we be kept from this community-killing sin? Or, to put it in the way that I phrased it at the beginning, how can we endure in worshiping our God? And that is the question that our passage this morning will answer. We're going to look at 11 verses, which may be the most we've looked at in our series through Hebrews. Uh, but I think you'll see there, there's a lot of compact truths in these 11 verses that will kind of open up fairly easily for us as we go through. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If you're here this morning, you didn't bring a Bible with you. There's some there in the pews. And if you're new to the Bible, you can find Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, there on page 949 in that pew Bible. And as always, I mention this every week, if, if you don't have a Bible of your own, friend, we are glad that you're here this morning. You came to the right place. We have some Bibles we would love to give you today. They're in the foyer. You can consider it our gift to you. Take it home, begin reading it, and, and pray and ask God that his spirit would work in opening his word to you. Well, friends, as we read our passage today from Hebrews 12, 18 through 29, let me invite you to stand once more in the honor of, read, of the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord to us today from Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you 
have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So far this sermon of Hebrews has cast those original hearers' eyes to Jesus as the bringer of good news. He is the better prophet. As the fulfiller of the law, he is the better Moses and brings us into an everlasting rest. As the achiever of redemption and being at once the great high priest and at the same time the sacrificial lamb whose blood ushers us into God's presence. And he has been the object of our faith. Not those Old Testament examples in Hebrews 11. They, they are wonderful examples that point us and, and encourage us and spur us on in faith. But they are not the object. No, Jesus has been as the author and founder of our faith. And now we see him in this passage become the keeper of the victory to which we run. Jesus is the keeper. We see a great contrast in this passage we have been thinking about how Jesus is the better, Jesus is the better than this, this, and this, and that is all true. But now we see that not just is there a better Savior in Jesus Christ under the new covenant, but there is a better home in which we look to. There is a better place in which we put our hope. And this is what we saw really in Hebrews 11, especially with Abraham, that he looked forward to a city that had not been yet seen. And so we find that here. And so in this passage, and, and I really want to just encourage you, this afternoon when you go home, after our picnic, when you're at home, resting, or even this week when you have time to go back to this passage, and just underline all of the contrasts that take place here. I don't have time to draw all of them out today. But we see here a great contrast between two places in particular. So, so there are going to be four points to this sermon. If you want to write these down, let me go ahead and give them to you, and I'll tell you where they're at as well. Number one, we're going to see the mountain of the Old Covenant there in verses 18 through 21. Number two, we're going to see the mountain of the New Covenant in verses 22 through 24. Number three, we're going to see the kingdom that cannot be shaken in 25 through 27. And fourth, we'll see the proper worship of the consuming fire in 28 and 29. So the mountain of the Old, the mountain of the New, the kingdom that cannot be shaken, and the proper worship of the consuming fire. And as we look at each of these, friends, my prayer for us, even this morning, is that we would draw near to worship God who reigns from His holy and heavenly mountain even right now. Let's begin then by looking at the mountain of the Old Covenant. We see it there in verses 18 through 21. 
To really understand this passage, though, we must understand this idea of contrast. I mentioned that there are many contrasts in this passage. Well, what does that word contrast mean? What does it mean to contrast something? We've seen this throughout this sermon of Hebrews, that it is this idea of comparing the differences between two things. And most often it has been Jesus that has been contrasted with those under the Old Covenant. But now we see something different. In this passage, we see where our worship is directed and how we respond to God contrasted with those in the Old Covenant and how they worshiped God and where their worship was directed and how they were to respond to God. We see here now that this preacher is going to give us ammo for pursuing the peace and the holiness that he has just called us to in the previous verses. So I'll attempt to point out these contrasts as we go along. But let's start here with this experience of Israel as Sinai. Now it's not mentioned here, it's not mentioned by name, but by all accounts and because of the quotes that are used from Exodus and Deuteronomy here, we know that the mountain that he is talking about is Mount Sinai. Now some of you have translations there with verse 18 that, that may say, for you have not come to a mountain. And that's a good, that's a good insertion there to some degree, but, but in the SV it, it captures this idea. For you have not come to what may be touched. This is the earthly mountain that they came to in the Old Testament, particularly after the people were drawn out of their bondage in Egypt and taken into the wilderness. They came to the mountain that God had promised Moses that they would return to. It is Mount Sinai. We find this particularly in Exodus 19 and 20. It is there on that mountain that God gives the law to Moses. As the people are consecrated, they, they are set apart for his namesake. He, he calls them out of bondage and he calls them to be a witness to the nations. This is one of the things we've been drawing out on Wednesday evenings in our Bible study, how the law itself, how Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy draw out this missional aspect that the purpose of the holiness of the people of God is so that they may display the character of God to the nations. And so he calls them up to the mountain so that he may give them his law, so that he may set them apart. And so they prepare for three days. They wash themselves clean. They are not to have any intimate sexual relations. And they cannot touch the mountain, not man or beast, as Exodus 19, verses 12 and 13 tell us. And so they waited there at the bottom of the mountain for three days after they were brought into the wilderness. And after three days, something happens. We have it described here in short you can find it there in Exodus, that after three days at the foot of that mountain, a cloud descends upon it. The cloud is full of the veins of lightning. Thunder is rolling amongst it. And they begin to hear a trumpet sound, a trumpet whose volume grows and grows and grows and is never ceasing, as if the ones who are blowing this trumpet sound need never to take a breath. The trumpet continues on and on, deafening the people, causing them to tremble as the earth quakes beneath them. We see then that Moses leads the people out of their tents here to the foot of the mountain. In Exodus 19, 18 and 19, it says this, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. 
Friend, put yourself there for a moment. Imagine what it would have felt like. I don't know how many of you recently have been to a concert. Back in my younger days, I used to go to more concerts than I'm allowed to now. Especially when I was single, I would go to concerts that were probably not the best to go to, and I would often find myself in front of speakers. And if you've ever been in front of a loudspeaker at a concert, the, the bass literally shakes your whole body. You can feel it inside of yourself. This has to be only a taste of what they felt there at the bottom of that mountain. The great trembling that was not just happening underneath them, but within them. The great fear and awe that would have overcome them because God himself. This is not a little thunderstorm that's happening. But that God himself, we find here, has descended on this mountain and all of his holiness and all of his majesty, the glory of God, as much as their eye can see, is before them. They were attacked by God's majesty and his holiness. We see that this divine display communicated much more than any speech could convey to them. Their eyes told them what they saw was something that they did not want to mess with. And so they tell Moses, you've got to go up. You've you got to go talk to God. We, we can't talk to him. We, we, can't, we can't touch the mountain. We can't even get close to him. God told them that they would die, but they knew he would, they would die because of his display there upon the mountain. And so they wanted nothing. They wanted him to go. They wanted Moses to go up and to receive God's word and, and to bring it back down to them. And friends, just, just stopping here for, for a bit of application. Because we live in a world that so wants to demean God and wants such a frivolous, petty, fluffy view of God. We should take note of the God of Scripture. We should take note of who this God is. Because if you are going to grow in peace and holiness, if you're going to look to Jesus, if you're going to stand in worship of God, you need to know who your God is. Here He is. He's glorious. He is powerful. What He did on that mountain was just a glimpse, just a sliver. Had He unveiled Himself fully, they would have been wiped out. Exodus 20, verse 20 says, God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. This is why they received this vision there on Sinai. It is a test from God. It is a display of Himself so that they may not sin. This is why we have those two quotes there in Hebrews 12. One from the people and one from Moses himself where it says that he trembles with fear. Because they were met with the holiness, the sheer holiness. They were captivated and they could not escape it. So they desired Moses to intercede before them, but he, he himself struggles to, doesn't he? So there's two things here that I, I specifically want you to note from this first handful of verses. First, that this mountain was touchable. They didn't want to touch it, but it was touchable. It was a physical mountain. This is a physical 
darkness and cloud and lightning. It's all visible. It's all there. They can feel it. They can hear it. It is something that can be known with their senses. And at the same exact time, this touchable mountain and this God whom they see is terrifying. He is terrifying. And so the scene was more than they can handle. The reason I want us to note those two things is because it's going to be really important in the contrast that we're about to see. But to understand that God is holy and that you are a sinner is essential in our salvation. And so we must start here of who God is and who we are. That if we had been there, you would have been no better off than the Israelites in going up on that mountain. But to stand in that place where you look up and you see the holiness and the majesty and the glory of God and you at the same time realize how unworthy you are, how wretched you are, means you're standing on the threshold of grace. So let's continue. The temptation for the people was to run back to Egypt or, as we see them do, to create a God in their own image. But the question for us, so that we don't run to the world, or we don't create a God of our own image, is what can move us to true worship and true devotion then? Notice then, as we move to the next point, what changes. Pick up on this. Hebrews 12, we're going to pick up in verse 22. Notice what changes. It is not God who changes but it is the location. And this becomes important. Look back there at the text. But you, who's he speaking to here? Those who have come under the new covenant blood of Jesus Christ, those who have been redeemed, those who have been saved, those who are no longer under the old covenant, but have come under the new, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we have the old, we have Sinai, we have the darkness, we have the cloud, we have the lightning, we have the trumpet, we have the trembling, we have the fear, we have the unworthiness, being terrified to even touch it. And then now we have contrasted a new mountain. And the preacher here says, but you have come. He says, you have come. That, that, that this, is, this is a beginning. That this is here and this is now and this is taking place. That this is possible even in this moment that we have come where? There's three things he draws out here. He draws out the place. He draws out the population, and he draws out the means of getting there. So let me hit them for us. The place is described as God's mountain or God's city. It's given three titles here. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. And each of these denote God's presence and his preeminence there. That it is his mountain, that it is his city, and it is the place of his peace. This is what Jerusalem means. So Mount Zion, we find brought up initially in the Old Testament. 
It was a mountain where David, as the king, overtook the Jebusites. It is the mountain where Solomon brings the ark, and it becomes really the centerpiece of their worship. We find this mountain alluded to over and over and over again, as we saw in our morning in our own call to worship from Psalm 48, Mount Zion. In the Psalms, it's alluded to as the mountain where God Himself resides. It is the place where His anointed one will come. It is the place where His people will come from. It's also described then here in Hebrews 12 as the city of the living God. On that mountain there is a city. It is called Jerusalem next, but don't miss how it's described here. There's a city of the living God. Now this phrase, living God, has been used before in the book of Hebrews. And it denotes God's power and His glory and His activity. That He is a moving, active God. It shows us that God is alive. And he's alive and well, reigning from his place. I mean, friends, don't miss this. Don't miss this. That all other cities, this city, surrounding cities, the cities of the world, this, they will perish. The nations will rise and fall. But this city here, it is eternal. And the reason it's eternal is not because it has better highways and byways and it has better water irrigation and the trees are planted in better spots. So the reason that this city will endure is because it is the city of the living God. Because He is alive and reigning, it will remain. And so it is described as the heavenly Jerusalem. See, for the Jews, Jerusalem was worship central. It was the centerpiece of their entire life. It was the city of peace. And it was the city of worship. It, it, it molded their entire lives and their entire worship. And so now for the author of Hebrews to call this the heavenly Jerusalem, a place that is held, that is kept, that we cannot see, to, for him to call it a heavenly Jerusalem, now is turning their worship. This is huge. We miss this, as most of us, I assume, being Gentiles. We miss what it looks like for, for a city to be central to our worship. But for these former Jews who had turned to Christ to now hear that the center of their worship, the place where their entire eyes were to be cast, is no longer a city in the Middle East, but a city that they cannot see. It's monumental. You've got to remember he's trying to squash the temptation for them to go back to the old and to continue on in the new. So what is this place? What is this place that's described here? Well, friends, in one sense he's describing heaven itself. He is describing this world of God's love, of God's presence, of His holiness and His glory and His majesty. This is where God resides. This is where He is. It's where He's reigning from. And yet it is to come down, we find out later in Revelation, don't we? This gets at the already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God and of the world to come. We're told in Revelation that this Jerusalem will come down 
from the heavens. That the bride of Christ will descend from the heavens. And that a new heavens and a new earth will be created and molded and shaped. This is further shown by the population of spirits that are above. Do you notice that? There, there's, there's really two groups that are mentioned here. First we have these angels in what's described as festal gathering. What does this mean? It's, it's a word we don't use very much. We're going to have a festal gathering, I guess, in a bit of sorts. What is a festal gathering? Well, it's a celebration. It was used often to talk about how the Jews would gather in celebration. But we find now that these angels in heaven, these heavenly angels are, are gathering in celebration and bringing glory to God. We see this throughout the scriptures as we see the angels described, but we've seen it even in the book of Hebrews as it takes up angels. Deuteronomy 33.2 says that 10,000 of holy ones were present at the giving of the law. In Daniel 7.10, it says, A thousand thousands served him, that is the ancient of days, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. David says in Psalm 68, The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. And so when you read about these angels gathering in festal celebration, this is not just the 50 to 100 of us. No, this is myriads upon myriads. It is the host of heaven gathering to worship God on Mount Zion. We're going to consider these angels more next week, but here they are worshiping. And then we have two descriptions of the saints in this passage. Two descriptions there. They, they kind of book in around this description of God as the judge of all, which I think is important. But let's look at these two descriptions of of God's people here. First, they're described as the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And then later, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, there's much debate over how we are to take these two descriptions. Some people take these as two separate groups. Some of them, some folks take these as one group. Some people believe that it's old covenant believers and new covenant believers that are being described here in two different ways. So the question for us is, is it different groups or is it one group? Is it different aspects or the same aspect? And, and I believe it's describing God's people as a whole, but coming at it from two different angles. And the way historically it's been described is the church militant and the church triumphant. If I could put it to you like that. The first group there being the, the church militant. Look back at the beginning of verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We see here a group of people who are described as an assembly. This is the word ecclesia, the word church. They have been gathered together. Why have they been gathered together? Because they've been enrolled. They have been given a name. They have been placed there by God Himself. This denotes God's work of salvation, that He is the one who saves. And so we see here that there is a group who is coming together. This gets at this idea of the church militant. It's what we sang about this morning. Shout on, pray on. We're gaining ground. And so friends, what you need to realize is that if you're a Christian, you're included in this. Though you're not there in that assembly right now, 
If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have been redeemed by His blood, then you are enrolled. You are a part of it. Though you're not there yet, you shall be there someday. So we are enrolled here as the church that is moving forward, as the church that is growing, as the kingdom that is expanded. But we also see here the church triumphant. Triumphant. Why, are, why do we use that phrase triumphant? Well, look back there at the end of 23. And to the spirits, okay, so, 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 so we're not there physically, right? When we die, though our bodies die, our spirit is with the Lord until Christ comes again, gives us a new body. And our spirit and our new body are together for eternity. Okay, all there, same page. If you want to talk more about that after the sermon, I'd be glad to talk to you about that. But we see here that there are the spirits. These, these are the dead. Okay? And where are they? The spirits are on Mount Zion. And why? Because they are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The righteous made perfect. And this is why we call it the church triumphant. Because they have been made perfect. They have triumphed. They have received the victory. They have overcome. You think about those old covenant believers that we looked at in Hebrews 11, that they cast their eyes ahead, that they believed and it was counted to them as righteousness. And in their death, they ascended to the Lord. They ascended Mount Zion. They came to the city of the living God and their faith became sight and they, their righteousness was fully applied and they were made perfect. And friends, the same is true of every Christian who for the, over the last nine decades who has resided in this church and gone on to be with the Lord, they're now made perfect. For some of us, that's our mothers and fathers, our grandparents, those that were great friends to us. They're there, a part of the spirits who are righteous but now made perfect. And so we see here that the population consists of angels and men. I'm sorry, angels and men worshiping God there in that heavenly Jerusalem. Skipped over God as the judge of all, and then we have Christ here. The, these, these two calls here are the means. The means. We have the Father and the Son and His blood. See, friends, the reality we have to come to is that the God of Mount Sinai is the God of Mount Zion. They're not two separate gods, the Old Testament God and the New Testament. No, this is the same God. And the, the, the kicker, the reason we know that it is the same God is because the God in Mount Sinai who came down in terror is described here as the God who is the judge of all. It is the very same idea that He has come as the one who judges. And who judges with full justice and full wisdom, and yet with His grace and compassion. Though this gathering is joyous, we find that it is sober and reverent. As we read back in Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. This is the God who is described here. We come before Him in awe simply because there are 10,000 reasons, but simply because He is the judge. 
but we do not come in dread. Because not only is God the judge presented here, but we also have the Son. The Son has borne the judgment for us. And this is our highest delight, brothers and sisters, to gather before God, the Son and God the Father. This is the miracle of grace. We find this miracle in the final mention there of Jesus and His blood. And Jesus is described as the mediator of the new covenant. This reminds us of something that we came back to over and over and over again in, in Hebrews 7 through 9. That this Jesus, this Jesus who, who died upon a cross, who bore the curse for His people, who shed His blood as a payment for their sin, this Jesus is not dead. He is not in the grave, but He has risen and He has ascended to the right hand of the Father who is the judge. And He mediates that this Jesus who died and rose again is Jesus of the scars. That He forever, forever holds forth His wounded hands, mediating, calling out, interceding before God. That our judgment was put upon Him. That our curse He took. That it is by His wounds that we are healed. Friends, this is the good gospel that we hold out. It is what we should cast our eyes upon even in this moment. But friends, this is what we hold out to our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones who do not know Christ, who are not walking in Him. That we have one for all who repent of their sins and turn to Him who stands as a mediator before the judge. And the reality, the good news for us is that the Father finds great delight in receiving His Son back to His right hand for us and on our behalf. So we find that Jesus is the linchpin that keeps us in heaven, that holds us unto eternity, that pours out this new covenant, this covenant of God's grace that is purchased and achieved and upheld by His blood that it is Jesus who holds it out so that we may enter in, so that we may come before God. Friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, this is the question that you must answer with your life. How is it that you will stand before God the judge one day? How is it that you will endure before Him whom you have rebelled against? How is it? There's no other answer in which we find rest and peace and salvation than Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And this is why he closes this section by saying that his blood speaks a better word than Abel. Abel, you remember, was the first one mentioned there in Hebrews 11. I think it's no no coincidence here that he now closes out this part of chapter 12, because 13, we're going to go in a different direction a bit. He closes out with the way that he started back in Hebrews 11 by saying, Abel, who died, who was murdered by his brother, his blood poured out on the ground, cried vengeance for his murderer. But the blood of Jesus spilled for his people, who died because of us, 
We are the murderers here. He has died for us. And his blood does not cry out vengeance, but it cries out mercy, grace, salvation, redemption brought unto life. It speaks a better word. So that those who come under the blood of Christ may come up to the mountain. Do you see that? Those who come under the blood of Christ may go up, may enter, may charge Mount Zion with full assurance and full endurance and full trust and full hope. If you needed a reason to strengthen your weak knees today and lift up your drooping hands, here it is. There is the mountain of God where true worship takes place and there is one there who receives all who come to Him and strengthens them to worship Him. This is the place of God's habitation where He dwells forever, Psalm 9:11 tells us. It is the seat of the throne and the reign and the kingdom of Christ, Psalm 2 tells us. Sean's going to be preaching this in June. It is the place, Psalm 69 says, where the divine promises are poured out from where the gospel proceeds and Christ came forth, Isaiah 40, verse 9 tells us. And it is the joy of the whole earth, Psalm 48, 2 told us. So friends, the question for you is how do we come to this heavenly mountain? How do we come to it? This is something Jesus himself takes up with the woman at the well in John 4, is it not? He tells her, you, you, your people, the Gentiles worship, they do not know. Our people, they worship here in Jerusalem upon the mountain. But there is coming a day, there is coming a day where worship will happen in spirit and in truth. And it will not be on this mountain. And this is really how this passage then folds over and closes. We won't spend much time there in verses 25 through 27, but let me read them for us as we see the kingdom that cannot be shaken because it really rolls over into the commands. Picking up in verse 25 then. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, friends, let me just stop here for a second. How is he speaking? This is a question many of us have, right? Especially we live in a world where we hear a bunch of Christianese that Jesus is speaking in this way and Jesus is speaking in that way and I got this new voice from the Lord or I heard this thing from the Lord. How is it that Jesus is speaking? It says here, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. How is, how is God speaking? If you need the answer, just turn back to Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. I'll let you do that on your own free time. Let's keep going though. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. We saw this on Sinai. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So what do we have here? We have another contrast. He draws from a prophecy from Haggai, chapter 2. We have here a contrast, though, that God spoke in the mountain on Sinai. They did not listen to it. 
We find this throughout the book of Deuteronomy, warning upon warning upon warning that if you do not hear my voice, if you do not follow my commands, if you go after other gods and pursue other loves, it will bring destruction upon you. You will surely perish. And so we see, as, as Martin Luther points out, that, that if we obey and if we can uphold commandment number one, which have no other gods before me, then, then all of the other nine commandments fall right in line. And this is it right here. That he warned them, do not worship other gods. Do not chase after other gods. Do not go after the idols of the nations, but follow me and me alone. And if you do not, it will bring great destruction upon you. You will surely perish. And this is exactly what we see. This is why I think he draws from Haggai 2 here, is because it's a, it, it is the exile that we see where God's people because they do not follow after him, but chase after the gods of the nations. They, they, they are taken out of the earthly Jerusalem. We find in Ezekiel 10 that his glory leaves the temple. So he says if, if they perish because they did not listen to him when he called to them, from the mountain, how much more will we be able to escape if we don't listen to him who calls from the heavenly Jerusalem, from Mount Zion? And this is really what the book of Hebrews has been about in large part, has it not? We've looked at warning after warning in this book. There are five warnings throughout this book in chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and chapter 6. And, and now we come here to the final warning. But, but friends, it is a hopeful warning. Don't miss how hopeful this warning is. Yes, it is a warning because it denotes that God will vindicate His name, that He will not give His glory to another, that He will not allow false worship, that every knee will bow, either in worship or in condemnation, but that every knee will bow, and that He will show that He is God over all. This is the warning that is given to us, but it, in the same time, is a hopeful warning. It is a warning because it tells us that if we put our hope in worldly things, that those things will prove barren in the end. It was true for the old covenant believers, but it's true for us as well. But it's hopeful because the promise held within that there is something that will remain. And it is the very mountain that's described. And it is the God who resides there. And it is the Savior who has ascended there. And so here's my question for you as we move to the commandments here at the end of this passage and close out. When the kingdoms of this world rise and fall, and when your hopes and your dreams and things going a certain way and laws being passed and this politician or this official doing or fulfilling whatever they promised they were going to do, when it all falls apart, where is your hope? Who are you going to listen to? How are you going to worship? When you feel in your individual lives weak and lost, like a sheep left in the wilderness because of your own sin and because of your own neglect or, or maybe because someone has sinned against you, where will you look? What will you call to mind? Where will you run? It, parents, when we educate our children to be citizens of the kingdom of God. How do we help them know how to speak in this kingdom? How to relate to one another in this kingdom? How, how they are to work in this kingdom? How are they here to give themselves away? 
What does enduring, grace-produced, faith-filled response to this God who saves us through His Son look like? That was a long sentence. Here's the question. How do we respond? That's really it at the base level. How do you respond to this God who's not quaking on a mountain, but who has called you to Himself from Mount Zion through the blood of the Son? How do you respond? And that's how he closes. Picking up in verse 28. Look back there. Therefore. Therefore. He's going to give us two let us's. We've had a lot of let us's throughout the book of Hebrews. Here's two more. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Friends, how ought we to respond to this God and to His kingdom? He tells us here, number one, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful. Friends, you just like me have many things to complain about, to despair over. And here's, why, why do we complain? Why do we despair? Why do we fret? Why do we worry? And friends, the answer is here. It's because we've not seen God's kind hand of providence and His discipline. We've not seen who sits on the throne. Because we put so much stock in the things of this world. Because we have not set our eyes fully upon Jesus. But the call here is to what? To be grateful. Grateful for what? Not, not primarily for the stuff you got. Not, not primarily for the people in your life. But for the kingdom in which you live. This is what kills complaining. This is what kills fretting and despairing. It is gratefulness that you stand firm, feet in cement. The kingdom of God. Because His kingdom endures. His purposes endure. His plan endures. His work endures. Why? Because the King of kings who reigns above endures. He will not die again. It says that we are receiving it. That we've received it in part and we're going to receive it fully one day. That we see it in part now, even right now, even in this very moment. We're tasting the kingdom of God in part, but one day we will know it fully. And so, in light of that, let us offer. Let us offer worship unto this God. You know, it's interesting to me You'll be all right. It's interesting to me that the Heidelberg Catechism, some of you know it, it has three parts. And the third part, the last part of the Heidelberg Catechism is entitled Gratefulness. Gratefulness. This is how the Catechism ends, gratefulness. And within part three of the Catechism, entitled Gratefulness, there are questions about two things. The Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Now what's interesting to me about that is that what they understood then we have totally missed now. That gratefulness in and of itself should be a response of obedience. That our gratefulness should blossom into obedience. It should blossom into reverence. It should blossom into what we find here as acceptable worship. And so, if we want to respond the way that God's Word calls us to here, which I pray that you do, we need to understand what is acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
unlike false worship. What must it look like? Well, we see that here in our corporate gatherings, don't we? This is why we as a church shape our gatherings not around what the world thinks is going to be cool or not what feels good to us or not what song really gets our heart beating and what, you know, new church growth movement we find on the internet for preachers and pastors. What shapes our worship as a church that we attempt as best we can in our feebleness to keep it in reverence and awe is obeying and submitting to God's Word. We do what God's Word tells us to do. And if you think that's boring, I'll let you and the Lord deal with that after church today. But then it also impacts our personal worship as well. That reverence and awe means we live with our heads up and our eyes open. That we think about what we do with our time. That our mornings, we think about them. That our evenings, we think about them. That our work and our leisure, our money, our children, our homes, our education, our jobs, we think and we ensure, heads up, eyes open, am I walking in reverent and obedient awe of God in my life? Why is it so important to think like this? Let's close by looking at that last phrase. This passage ends the way it begins. For our God is a consuming fire. Friends, we see that grace and justice, that mercy and holiness are not at odds with one another. That the same God who came down upon Mount Sinai and smoke and fire is the same God who resides on Mount Zion. And He is a consuming fire. And so the question is, will we be consumed in judgment? Or will we be purified and refined into holiness and righteousness by this consuming fire? Or to ask it this way, where does your worship of God come from? Do you truly worship Him at all? Are you ascending to the mountain of the pathway that was purchased for you by Christ? Have you left the broad path altogether and are walking the narrow path to Christ? Our response to so gracious a gift as Christ has purchased us must be worship offered in gratitude and reverence and awe. God, who is the judge of all for the sake of Jesus, the new covenant mediator, has welcomed believers to draw near and worship Him in His most holy place. So why do we worship God down here? It's not just because that's what we've been doing here for 96 years. We worship Him because we can now know Him in part, and one day we can know Him fully. This reality should cause us to unite together, as weak and needy as we are, and glorify Him who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. It should cause us to unite together to exalt the Son whose blood has purchased us back from death and by that same blood will usher us into the everlasting kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, as we prepare now to commit ourselves 
again to you and to one another, we pray and we ask that you would give us as much as our feeble minds can comprehend and our weak hearts can take, that you would give us a vision of your glory. Jesus, we come before you as we prepare to come to this table, remembering, recalling, and asking that you would revive our hearts again and trust and faith for the blood that you shed for your body that was broken. Would you do this great work for us now? Because you are worthy of all worship and we long to give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.